Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We begin with our 47th podcast in the first half of American history. In the 46th podcast, in our continuing series right now on the American Civil War, we looked at the war on the high seas, the way the Union blockaded the entire Confederate coast. This forced the Confederate Army to start thinking outside of the box and how to break that Union blockade. That's what led to the first side of an experiment with hanging iron planks over the sides of the ships in order to see if they could break, again, that Union blockade, giving us our first naval battle between two ironclad ships. We looked at foreign relations in which European and Asian countries sided with the Union, all, of course, just one, while the remaining of those that wished to pledge were actually supporting the Confederacy. We looked at the bloodiest day in all of American history to date at the Battle of Antietam on September 17, 1862. We then moved ahead by looking at this idea of the Emancipation Proclamation moving forward as a result of those Union successes. But we also saw perhaps what is not commonly well known, that the North, a majority of the Northern soldiers or Union soldiers were not for fighting for what they saw as freedom of the slaves. States' rights, absolutely they're going to fight for that but not to free the slaves. Hence again, 40% threatening to go AWOL as a result. Also too, that changed the, uh, the focus for the South as now they were fighting truly for survival, which is really no surprise, sadly, that the bloodiest battle of the American Civil War had yet to occur by January 1st, 1863. That bloodiest battle would take place exactly six months later over three days in a battle that we discussed called Gettysburg. With the Union deaths over 23,000 and the Confederacy casualties over 28,000. We also saw the way that a portion of the Gettysburg battlefield would be dedicated in order to remember the carnage essentially that took place between July 1st and July 3rd, 1863. I also mentioned about the invitation of Senator Edward, Edward Everett from the state of Massachusetts, who spoke for over two hours, which largely no one can remember what he said. While the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, who was invited essentially as an afterthought, spoke for only two minutes and clocked in at 269 words, which also then showed the insight into his thinking and his heart as he reviewed all of the bodies piled up on both sides at the battle, former battle of Gettysburg. And that's the reason why, if you bear with me, as we begin our 47th podcast, by looking at 
the Gettysburg Address. As I will read it to it, the 269 words, I do feel as though we owe it to the Civil War veterans, as well as our 16th President of the United States, to hear those words for my listeners right now. Quote, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus so far nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from this earth. Abraham Lincoln, November 19th, 1863. It is no surprise that ironically against what Abraham Lincoln had predicted that he was right in one way, that we no longer remember Senator Everett's words, but we will always remember his words as the reason why it is etched out on so many different stone tablets throughout the United States as a memorial. So as we move on to this 47th podcast, and more battles, of course, ensued in the latter, latter half of 1863, let's take a quick update here by looking at where things stood, both in the Union as well as with the South in the American Civil War, again by the end of 1863. Vicksburg, Mississippi, had finally fallen to General Grant in a battle that started in the middle of May of, 19, excuse me, of 1863 and ultimately fell several months later. But by Vicksburg, Mississippi falling, the Union had now more or less secured the western border of the eastern half of the United States along the Mississippi River and its valley. The amount of resentment and hatred that the citizens of Vicksburg, Mississippi would have towards Grant and the Union, and even by extension the United States, long after the Civil War ended, they would not celebrate the 4th of July for 81 years. 
It would not be until the news of D-Day's successes during the latter half of the Second World War in 1944 would the town of Vicksburg, Mississippi, actually celebrate the 4th of July again for the first time. 40% of Confederate soldiers were either on leave now or were AWOL, recognizing that there was no winning this civil war. In terms of their economics, the common needed staple, such as flour, on January 1st, 1863, when the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, a barrel of flour cost roughly $70. By the end of that year, that price had skyrocketed to over $250 a barrel. The Union, despite the, in, the influx of available soldiers through immigration, the Union was running low on fresh recruits. Allowing, which had to allow them, to, black men, to enlist, although paid $7 a month versus the standard $10 a month. Yet staying with that theme about black soldiers serving on the Union side, by war's end, 85% of freed black men enlisted make up just 10% of the Union Army. But it was a significant percentage to say that they were brave and courageous is an understatement, said one young black soldier, quote, I need another gun, end quote. Quit your complaining, he was told. Complaining? All he asked for was another gun. What he did not ask for was medical assistance, as he had a bullet in his head, one in his chest, another in his left arm, and one in his right leg. That brings us to the end of phase two of the American Civil War. Phase three, the final phase, of course, is from 1864 to 1865. And how ironic that we begin the third and final phase of the American Civil War with one of the most unpopular men of the entire Union Army. And that man is none other than Ulysses S. Grant. Burp? Hiccup? What's with that, you wonder? Well, you see, Grant was known as the Union drunk or the Army drunk. And Lincoln could not ignore Grant's successes. He kept a devastating chokehold on Vicksburg, Mississippi, ultimately forcing that city to surrender of which I was fortunate enough to receive a cannonball from that battle, which is with my many historical artifacts that I have from the American Civil War. And that cannonball, if it could only speak, could show or testify to the amount of pressure that Grant continued to put on the people of Vicksburg. And it was a success. And all of Grant's successes continued to catch the attention of the Commander-in-Chief Abraham Lincoln. So after Lincoln flushed through five commanders, some of them in just 12 months, he felt as though he had no choice but to interview Ulysses Grant to find out just what this soldier was made of. He invited him to the White House, or shall I say, commandeered him to the White House earlier that month, in the month of March. He was told to arrive on a specific day at a specific time. 
The day came, so did the hour, but no sign of Ulysses Grant. The time ticked past as Abraham Lincoln's secretary wondered, should I remind him, the president, that who he's requested is the town drunk and he's probably hung over and might not even remember that he was supposed to meet with the president, but she held back. However, Ulysses Grant ultimately did show up. A flabbergasted president of the United States didn't know whether just to simply throw his rear end out of the office, humor him with a mock interview, or as his little voice was telling him, proceed with the interview, which is exactly what Abraham Lincoln did. Lincoln forced Grant to have a seat and pace the Oval Office in front of him with the dismal reflection on the pace of the war. Grant said nothing. Lincoln continued with an update as to what he saw some serious issues with the conduct of the war. Grant, to our knowledge, may not have been aware that he was being interviewed for the position of top commander. Nevertheless, Grant finally interrupted the president after hearing a statement more than once that he had no stomach for. Mr. President, may I object and interrupt, please? But you have referred to the Confederate soldiers as our brethren or our brothers. Sir, a brother does not hold up a gun in the face of his own brother. They are not our brethren. They are enemy combatants. They are treasonous American citizens. Secondly, little did Grant know that Lincoln was smiling to himself. Secondly, you continually talk about the way that General McClellan came up to update you on the progress of the war. Grant mistakenly thought that that's what Lincoln wanted. So Grant was going to let Lincoln have it right here and right now, that under no circumstances will Grant interrupt his progress of the war to come back to Washington, D.C. to update the president. Mr. President, on some sneaking suspicion that I might have, should you appoint me to top commander, the only time you will ever see me again is either when I have surrender papers in my hand or I am lying in a wooden box because the enemy shot me. Those are the two conditions that you would ever see me again. Updates, I'll update you or my commanders will update you through the telegraph. But you appoint me top commander, then I only, my compass only knows one direction south. Lincoln needed to hear no more. He appointed Grant as top commander. The uproar by the State Department and the Department of War was deafening. Doesn't the president know that Grant is the town drunk, the army drunk, the drunk of the Union Army? And that's when Lincoln is reported to have re responded or retorted that find me a barrel of what that man drinks and send it to every soldier because they're going to need it when they fight under the command of General Grant. Had that directive gone through, Lincoln would have needed 533,000 barrels, over a half a million barrels of liquor, because when he appointed Grant top commander of all of the North's war activities, Grant was in charge of 533,000 soldiers at that time that was the largest army in the world. He coordinated simultaneously 
attacks on all fronts, capturing the use and utilizing the railroad to move Union soldiers to the east and to the west and to the east and to the west, only confusing the Confederacy as to where Grant will attack, attack next. At one point, a frustrated Confederate general, General Robert E. Lee, penned to President Jefferson Davis, Sir, General Grant is attacking in a crab-like manner that is suffocating and exhausting the Confederate troops, end quote. This is the reason why, listeners, that the Confederate soldiers by and large high-fived one another when news came down that Lincoln had appointed Grant, Grant as the top Union commander. They all laughed to themselves that the president was so desperate to appoint a known alcoholic as top commander, and everybody left except Lee. Lee knew of Grant's record when he was at West Point. Lee knew of Grant's constant out-of-the-box thinking. Yes, Lee would have graduated, did graduate at the top of his class. Grant was lucky to graduate in the middle of his class with so many demerits on his record that he lost count. But Grant never ceased to amaze his teachers and his commanders at the way that he could win on a mock battlefield, even when he was given a smaller or an inferior number and quality of troops. Before General Grant left Washington, D.C., he was then to receive his third star, the last general in the United States history to receive a third star was George Washington. Before he left Washington, D.C., he wanted to be sure that he, quote unquote, had Lincoln's back, which is the reason why when Grant left D.C. to take the Union soldiers south, he left the nation's capital, the most fortified and protected city on earth. While it may seem on the surface that I have Grant on a pedestal, that I am simply demonstrating that the man could do all right and could do no wrong, that is not the case. Grant in his own writings and his memoirs that I have read more than once will clearly testify to his many weaknesses, one of them at the very first battle as the commanding general of the Union forces at what became known as the Battle of the Wilderness, in Virginia on May 5th to 6th, 1864. It was a lopsided battle and a win for Lee, but that didn't take away the massive losses on both sides with the Confederates losing over 7,700 soldiers and the Union losing an outstanding 17,666 soldiers. The battle was an absolute bloodbath. It may have been fought for only two days, but Army surgeons worked for 96 hours straight just to amputate limbs. At one point, the consistent crescendo of screaming of soldiers who were having limbs amputated with no anesthesia got and drove General Grant to the breaking point, which at one point leaving a medical tent, he went to a tree to lean against it, dropped down to his knees, and cried uncontrollably. You are General Grant. You are in the position of watching your wounded, numbering in the thousands, 
have limbs hacked off. What do you do? What's your next move, listeners? For General Grant, there was no other choice. Of the remaining soldiers that were with him, still numbering well over a half a million, march south. Listeners, Lady General McClellan is gone. There is no going back to Washington, D.C. for updates. McClellan is gone from the battlefield, but he is not forgotten, as we will see later on when he will come back to haunt President Abraham Lincoln. Grant's top orders were to General William Tecumseh Sherman to cut the Confederacy in half in September of 1864 with Sherman's march to the sea, which is exactly what Sherman was successful in doing. Showing those results just two months later in the presidential election of 1864, that successful march to the sea saved Lincoln from re-election, or from being defeated, excuse me, in his bid for re-election against Democratic candidate who, you guessed it, none other than George McClellan. McClellan may have been fired from the battlefield, but all he did was transfer his efforts to defeat Lincoln in the political battlefield, which McClellan also did not know what success looked like as Lincoln went on for his second and, as we know, his final victory. Now, when I mention or bring up the Sherman's March to the Sea, to this day in the Deep South, where I have traveled many times, there is still a serious bone of contention, as to many people in the South in their interpretation of General Sherman and thereby extension General Grant's orders to, quote-unquote, destroy everything in the South. Destroy everything on General William Sherman's path? Yes, he did. It was estimated in 1865 dollars that Sherman destroyed roughly $100 million in assets. And the South would never forget this. And I'm not here to try to defend him or to exonerate him. But just to point out that Sherman sought as the South having two options when he was given his border orders to march in a southeasterly direction towards the South Atlantic Ocean to be able to cut in half the Confederacy. He saw it as the South having two options, surrender now and save what remains, or actually win the war, but have no country left. Until the South decides... I have my orders. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to think to you, think about the, ask you to think about that in a moment for a moment. Why would Sherman have left anything that he could not carry with him that could be useful in the war effort? If he could not carry it, if he could not make use of it right then and there, why would he leave it for the Confederates to use when they tried to come up behind him? To him, it made perfect military logistical sense that you leave nothing for your enemy to use against you. And if I cannot carry it, I will destroy it. Those were Sherman's orders. And no, he did not let the South off light because he stopped in Atlanta. Sherman's next set of orders were then to seal up the East Coast going north 
towards Washington, D.C., also destroying everything in his path. As we know, those orders never came to fruition because the South would ultimately surrender. But Sherman saw it, that the Confederate soldier would be gutted for everything that they needed to wage war. Out of desperation, the state of Georgia itself, which is not commonly known in American history, actually threatened to secede from, you might say, wait a minute, Georgia already seceded from the Union. Exactly. But that was in 1861. Georgia threatened to actually secede from the Confederacy because they were so desperate to save what remained of their state. With nonstop military pressure that Grant and Sherman applied to the South, to the Confederate Army via the railroad, to put this into perspective, over 24,000 miles of track belonged to the President and the Union forces. The South had less than 9,000 miles of what we call short line or stub-ended tracks, railroad tracks, meaning that in the North, every city was a hub for connections by rail to other cities. In the South, that did not wish to have the railroad's presence any more than it needed to, the stub-ed railroads meant that railroad tracks coming from the Northern Territories stop or dead-ended in major cities in the South. There was no quote unquote network of rail lines in the South. Nevertheless, do not think for a moment that the Confederate South did not see the importance of the railroad as instrumental in attempting to beat the Union during this Civil War. And that is the reason why they tried to lay as many miles of new railroad tracks as they could. But without industrial steel in their hands, by the end of the war, they had only eked out 100 miles of track, while Grant, just in the last year of the American Civil War, added more than 4,000 additional miles of railroad track installed. This nonstop pressure ultimately forced the Confederate soldiers to look to their top commander, none other than Robert E. Lee, for direction as to how to move forward with what seemed to be no plausible way to win the United States Civil War. And it is on this note that will bring us to the Union top commander, General Grant, and the Confederate General, Robert E. Lee, to Appomattox Courthouse in the beginning of April of 1865. When we return to our next podcast, we're going to explore that surrender. And while it may seem as though the way that I portrayed General Grant as this warmonger who wanted nothing less than the jugular of the Confederate South, I ask you that if you even choose to listen to not one more podcast of mine, please tune in to the beginning of the 48th podcast because a very different side of General Ulysses Grant is going to be demonstrated to you that more than one history book can back up and support with what I'll tell you. It was extremely important because the way that, the, that Grant treated the South would be a blueprint 
for future American generals to treat any enemy that lost in their bid to fight the United States of America. And it would be a template or an example worthy of repeating. So thank you for listening today. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. And if you liked what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. 